Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. I'm Yes Like Rockadopolis. And I am Lance Rockadopolis. And today we're going to talk about intellectual domination. So, intellectual domination is a form of domination in which one person or group of people controls another person or group of people by controlling their thinking. So we're not talking about any kind of cheap tricks or kinky play here. For example, we're not talking about mind fucks, which are basically practical jokes that people play on each other, apparently. Hypnosis, brainwashing, shady rhetoric, like formal and informal fallacies. We're also not talking about emotional manipulation disguised as some form of reasoning. We're also not talking about conversational dominance, like right fighting. Unfortunately, we do a lot of that (laughs) way too much. That's what you get when you have a couple that's really proud of their intelligence and specialness. It's not about one-upping each other. It's not about our egos even, necessarily. And part of why I don't want to talk about that is because while Lance may be a dumb Pollock, in reality, he's actually quite intelligent. So I don't always win those uh, spinning contests. I'm the type of Dom who needs to win all the time. It's TPE. She's very modest. She wins most of them. Yeah, but not (laughs) all of them. And of course, if he weren't very intelligent, I, I wouldn't be interested in him. So when I researched the term intellectual domination, the sources I found were overwhelmingly negative. They were mostly about justifications for atrocities like imperialism and colonialism. They were about like using theological arguments to oppress people like manifest destiny and the idea of salvation, saving someone's soul by torturing the sins out of them before you kill them. And cultural arguments have also been used as a form of intellectual domination, quote-unquote, civilizing people by forcing them to accept, for example, European ideas and ideologies. The Indian boarding schools in the United States is is a really strong example. Yeah, that's the whole white man's burden concept. As written about in the poem by Rudyard Kipling, he encouraged the American annexation and colonization of the Philippine Islands and all of the American-slash-Anglo empire building. Yeah. What's really interesting to me about the Indian boarding schools is that when I was looking into Irish education from, you know, the 17th to the mid-19th century, the Anglo-Irish in Ireland were doing pretty much the exact same thing as what the Americans were doing with the Indian boarding schools. They were taking the children of Irish Catholics and, you know, shipping them halfway across the country to schools where they were, you know, supposed to be reformed and corrected ideologically and just making them work, just Mm -hmm. making them slaves, making them domestic slaves for the Anglo-Irish oppressors. It was like the Americans had the Irish playbook. Like someone said, hey, here's how you can oppress the native people really well. (laughs) Yeah, that's sad. And it also breaks up the family. I mean, 
you're taking away somebody's children and basically indoctrinating them into a foreign culture. Yeah, but it was worse than that. Like they tortured them, they killed them, they starved them. It was truly an atrocity disguised as education. Another example of intellectual domination would be coming up with justifications for unjust wars and slavery. Yeah, Aristotle was one of the first to defend slavery. He stated that it is natural and beneficial to the master, of course, but it's also beneficial to the slaves. He basically thought that it's the responsibility of the superior owners that they should teach and demonstrate to the slaves virtue and reason. But we'll talk about that more in our next episode. So... All of that is horrific and unimaginably evil. So, of course, you know, we have to include all of that into our relationship. <laughs> of course. It's, it's totally consensual, right? Yeah. Um, and sexy. <laughs> so first we'll talk about intellectual domination in the kink world. And then we'll talk about intellectual domination in our dynamic. Intellectual domination in the kink world can take a lot of different forms. Of course, the most irritating to me is the um, ever-aspiring thought leadership from people who are not about teaching basic skills or techniques, but more about enforcing ideas and ideologies. There's an ideology associated with the assertion that the sub is really the one in power. It's basically a kind of a half-assed pseudo-feminist bullshit ideology. None of these that I'm talking about are super well thought out. There's also an ideology around consent that includes the assertion that even if you do consent, you still may not have actually consented. And again, as far as I can tell, this is based in a kind of a weird perversion of feminism Along those lines, there's a strong resistance to CNC and TPE in some circles that, again, seems to be tied to sort of a really unimaginative understanding of consent itself. And there almost always seems to be a gender thing going on there, that it always seems to be, what's the word, female presenting or female identifying women who want to... um, really dismantle the basic sort of reasons why people do BDSM, which Mm -hmm. is to transgress. Yeah, what you're saying now is is reminding me of our discussion that we had on consent and the article that we found that really challenged at least me to think about consent in a more deeper and enlightened way. Yeah, or at least more complex and more informed by different philosophical strategies. The leather community has its own ideologies around respect, honor, loyalty, and honesty. And I think protection is in there somewhere. You got to protect your Mm -hmm. people, which is nice. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but it does seem rather vanilla for a subculture that claims to have originated the kink community in North America. I mean, what happened to sex? What happened to power exchange? If those aren't core values, 
what's the point? And I'm just going off of things that I've read online here, right? This is actually an honest question. If there are any leather folk out there listening, we would love to hear from you on the evolving values of the leather community. Another relatively common ideology that we find in the kink world is femdom as female supremacy. And I really, you know, I think if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I think that's absurd. Sexy, but absurd. Yeah, it is sexy (laughs) to talk about. You know, some of these ideologies may be more defensible than others from the standpoint of both logic and just the limits of empirical reality. But they are all promoted socially, online, and in person, though in very different ways. For example, there's this idea of seniority in the kink community or experience. Traditionally, the longer someone has been active in the community, the more they know. Therefore, the more power they should have. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power. But this is a known informal fallacy called argumentum ad anecdota. Experience doesn't necessarily imply knowledge or expertise. In fact, I've observed lately that generational antipathy has largely resulted in much more distrust of older people in the community, much more distrust than respect. Hmm. So do you think that disrespect by the younger generation of the older is an intellectual power grab that's claiming their own intellectual domination? Yeah, it's hard for me to use the word intellectual in that case, though. You know, I I certainly think that there is an ideological piece there. Right. That's what I meant by that, that they're claiming their own identity and ideas for themselves. Right. Not just ideas, but values. Right. And assumptions and a system of assumptions. But I think in general, it's also that they just don't trust older people. And of course, older people might not be as physically desirable in a sexual subculture, at least not in the US. I'm happy that the French still are pretty cool with older women. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a known French thing. And uh, I'm looking forward to moving at least near France. Another strategy for gaining intellectual domination in the kink world would be to identify oneself as a kink educator. Standing in front of a group of people and telling them how things are done seems to be an effective way of gaining power and prestige in the community. And age and experience level really don't seem to factor in. Most of the kinky classes I've attended were comprised of information you could find in a 20-second search on Google. Of course, there are exceptions. I've been inspired by a few really good presenters and teachers. Midori and Danorama come to mind. Yeah, you also really enjoyed the... A discussion about power exchange from Damiana Chi, correct? Yeah, well, it was about sadism, actually. Okay. Yeah, she was really good, too. She totally validated my sadism at DomCon. 
after being like completely kink shamed about it in an mm-hmm. earlier session, I, I was literally tearing up yeah. with gratitude for that. And so I guess the difference between Midori Danorama and Damiana Chi versus some other kink educators, you know, first of all, they teach different types of play that I haven't seen taught by anyone else, right? Sure, there might be a little bit of technique involved with using a flogger well, right? But you don't need a class on it. Whereas Midori's rope for domination class that we took was really fun and really cool. I wish we had had a video because it was hard to remember when we tried to do it at home. Yeah, that that was really unique. And it was like a dynamic use of rope. And it's so static. But she was basically doing martial arts moves with the rope and tying people up doing like a very beautiful fluid movements yeah spinning people around with the rope lassoing them dragging them to the ground Mm -hmm. it was really fun we got to figure out how to do that again and then there was danorama's belt bondage class which i'll never forget Mm -hmm. he's so charismatic and he has so much humility like he really doesn't have anything to prove in both cases we're being provided with unique knowledge and perspectives that come from people with open minds and a lot of creativity. And their teaching style evinces a really high level of humility. You know, and humility and modesty are a big part of Aristotelian ethos. Mm -hmm. Humility makes you trust someone. And they've got that in spades because they don't have anything to prove. So, so far, I haven't been that interested in actively intellectually dominating Lance. I guess I saw it as kind of beneath me. I think it was during my undergraduate years that I decided that ideologies were very limiting and ideologues should not be trusted or respected. On the other hand, I'd been having fantasies of world domination since age 10 or so. And now that I have a partner in crime who strongly encourages my deep inclinations toward megalomania. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is like one of the perfect examples of how one's self-interests and the pursuit of that self-interest is mutually beneficial. I mean, I'm highly encouraging in your growth as as a dom. As a megalomaniac. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wouldn't say primarily, but there is a benefit to me in that growth, the benefit being that wonderful feeling of being controlled. Right. So it's sort of me being on the path to megalomania, (laughs) not necessarily achieving the summit of total domination of the planet. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't wait to see you on the balcony in front of thousands of adoring, cheering fans. Yes, like You'll be kneeling right beside me. Over the years, I've done a little research here and there on historical figures who had a tremendous will to power and were smart, talented, and ruthless enough to achieve their will. It's not like I was doing this research at that point to try to figure out how to be like them. It was just sexy and cool to Mm. read about them. But one thing that I noticed about some of them was that They weren't particularly evil, at least not by my standards. 
As it turns out, not every ruthless dictator is a Hitler, or an Ivan the Terrible, or a Pol Pot, or even a Henry VIII, who was definitely evil, by the way, but actually a fairly decent philosopher and uh, poet and theologian. The vast majority of dictators, in fact, do not seem to fit into the category of evil dictator. Mm. And out of all of the ones that I've heard about, from Augustus to Castro to Lula da Silva, who is once again the president of Brazil after spending time in jail for corruption. So there, there are four dictators in particular who I really resonate with. Louis XIV of France, Emperor Napoleon I, Josip Broz Tito, uh, chief architect and leader of Yugoslavia from the mid-1940s until 1980, and Gamal Nasser, who served as the second president of Egypt from 1954 until his death in 1970. So all of these people could not have come to power and stayed in power as long as they did without an army, a treasury, a political ideology, and a will to power. Of those four sets of resources, the only one that I currently have is a will to power. But I do have other resources, including role models, like the four people I just mentioned. One thing that I can take from Louis XIV is the use of ritual and ceremony to keep people in line. And here's a quote from a biography of Louis XIV. I've been studying this guy since, actually since seventh grade. Uh, he's just really fascinating. So this is just a snippet of a quote about his notorious, his morning rituals. The first getting up ceremony began. Members of the entourage, those with important roles, and certain friends who enjoyed the privilege of attending such moments, successively entered the king's bedchamber while the sovereign was washed, combed, and shaved. Then the officers of the chamber entered the grand getting-up ceremony, as well as the most important members of the court. The number of spectators was probably around a hundred. So every morning, Louis XIV had a hundred people successively <laughs> in his room to celebrate the rising of the Sun King. Oh my goodness, that seems so invasive and total lack of privacy. Like, oh my God. And yet that was his own special ritual that he right. developed. And it has a lot to do with his childhood trauma and all of that. But the thing that's really interesting about it to me is that I've seen a much more pared down version of this in several femdom how-to books, mm. right? This idea of starting the day with a kind of weird subjugation ritual from your <laughs> subs, right? And we do it a little bit already, right? Mm -hmm. And with the coffee, I have you bring my coffee. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I've heard that uh, as well uh, in certain femdom books that the servants would basically prepare everything the night before and be all organized. But what sorts of wake-up rituals do you envision us doing? Well, definitely the coffee. And then I think you should set out my clothes. 
I think that would be a good idea. These are, this is just such basic stuff. You mm -hmm. know, I think it would be interesting if when I get my other three slaves to have everyone line up, mm -hmm. <laughs> just like Louis the Fourteenth. Do I really want that? Maybe. I think it's worth a try. But I mean, I'm pretty sure that it's, you know, I definitely want you to kneel at the foot of the bed while I sip my coffee. We also do the spanking. I don't think Louis was thinking that he was enjoying having a hundred people in his room. What he was doing was everything he could to maintain power. Mm. And he was very, very successful. He reigned in France for 72 years. But while I am kneeling at the foot of the bed, while you're sitting your coffee, can I rub your feet or suck on your toes? Definitely rubbing the feet. I might not be in the mood for the toes at that point. But again, it really is more about you than about me. I don't think he got a lot of pleasure out of it, necessarily, but he got his people in line. Mm -hmm. And it also seemed like that's an opportunity to organize his day and make sure that people are doing his bidding. And I kind of like that idea of us preparing for the day and you stating what I should be doing. I can imagine you and Louis XIV giving marching orders to, to his servants in the morning. I love that sentence, you and Louis XIV, like we're basically the same. In, in my eyes, you are. So at the core of Louis's bedchamber was the ideology of absolutism, right? He was like physically enforcing absolutism on his courtiers and his advisors every single morning. This ritual is about the rising of the Sun King. He was very religious. He was very Catholic, and he enforced a lot of religious law at his court, but he saw himself as directly below God. And that mm -hmm. was typical for the period. That was the same with James I. That was ruling by divine right era. Um, so he wasn't the only one who was thinking about that. But he, what he was doing was physically enforcing his absolute power. Yeah, and that's an example of physical domination serving in intellectual purpose. Absolutely. So Napoleon, there are a few things I've learned from him. He was a ruthless dictator, without a doubt. But one of his resources was the use of the ideology of the French Revolution. Yeah, he instituted the Napoleonic Code, which really was the first modern legal system that influenced and defeudalized many countries throughout the world. Yeah, he did actually enforce a lot of the values of the French Revolution with the Napoleonic Code. He leveled the class system legally, ending all legal rights pertaining to class status and primogenitor even, he did afford a few more civil rights to women. I definitely don't want to create greater equality for my subs because he was the emperor. He never suggested that he was going to enforce democracy. Hmm. But what about the strategies that he used to conquer most of Europe yeah, at that time? One thing that comes to mind is is his ability to maneuver and attack rapidly. And what you did was very Napoleonic. You basically 
assumed control of me uh, right off the bat. It was sort of a coup d'etat. Yep. Yeah. Your demands were total power exchange with absolutely no negotiations. You basically demanded my complete surrender. <laughs> Those were good times. Yeah. Uh, another thing is his insistence on intense drilling of soldiers. Yeah. And again, this is one of those classic power exchange strategies that I was reading in the femdom books early on. And I was like, that's so stupid. Why would I waste time doing that? But it's about developing discipline mm -hmm. and compliance. You know, the books talk about having the slaves learn the slave positions. Right. And I think that that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to drill you for hours and hours <laughs> on the slave positions. That'd be miserable for both of us, but maybe 10 minutes a day. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This concludes part one of our discussion of intellectual domination. We will continue our discussion in part two. Until next time, have a great week. Mm -hmm.